Hello there, it's Amantha. I'm currently on a break, so I've handpicked a bunch of my favourite episodes from the last year to share with you. Okay, on with today's best of episode. Can everybody see me? Just wait, I'm, I'm going to share my screen. Wait, hang on a second. Okay, how about now? Ah. <sighs> We've all sat in these dry Zoom presentations that are slow, boring, unengaging, and often just plain painful. We think to ourselves, how much longer is this going to go for? And don't forget to smile and look like you're listening. But does it actually have to be this way? Co-founder and CEO of mm -hmm, Phil Libin thinks definitely not. He's designed a tool that will have your colleagues entertained and even laughing during presentations by providing you with lots of fun tools and gadgets to utilize to stop your workmates from tuning out. And this isn't the first time Phil has looked to make life better and easier with technology. Because before mm -hmm, Phil and his team created the life-changing note-taking app Evernote, which I have been using every single day, many times a day for the better part of a decade. So when it comes to building a business, which Phil has plenty of experience doing, why are the numbers three and 10 critical? And why is it better to be positive during a meeting instead of trying to appear to be smart? And how can working from a museum help you solve complex problems? And why is it important to differentiate between difficult versus unpleasant decisions? My name is Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium. And this is How I Work, a show about how to help you do your best work. So I've been using Phil's latest technology product, mm -hmm, spelt M-M-M-H-M-M, for about six months. Mm -hmm solves one of my biggest frustrations with traditional meeting software, which is that the slides, when you're making a presentation, are really big and the human presenting becomes the size of a postage stamp. So with mm -hmm, you can superimpose your slides in the background and put yourself in the foreground at any size that you want to be, which is great for actually making a connection with the people that you're speaking to. So I wanted to know from Phil, who's obviously thought a lot about this, what is the ideal way to use slides in a meeting or a presentation? Well, I think companies who make uh, presentation software, you know, who, who are in the business of making slides, they, they very naturally act as if the slide is the most important thing. Uh, and so, like this whole like PowerPoint culture of, of slides kind of comes from that, um, and, it, and it isn't like you're you're much more important than the slides. The the, the presenter, the person doing the, the the talking, is much more important. So the slides are really there as background material, which is why we literally put them in the background uh, instead of you know right next to you or in front of you in most setups, because the focus really should be on on you and your face, on on, on how you're communicating, and, and having the slides be you know a visual reinforcement. Uh, uh, of it. Uh, we're trying to change the cognitive style of presentations because I think that the cognitive style of PowerPoint is, is, is quite weak. Uh, it's a style of, you know, of pitching, of bullet points, of, of things like that. They're these sort of lazy uh, crutches that don't lead to very effective presentations. And I think on video, they're just terrible. Like they think PowerPoint is barely, 
you know, effective in real life on, on video, it's, it's pretty much unbearable. Um, luckily, there's plenty of examples of really effective video communications and slides. You just have to go to TV. You have to go to, you know, comedy shows, Saturday Night Live, The Daily Show, that kind of stuff. So we just try to recapture that kind of spirit where it's a person talking or multiple people talking and the slides are meant to kind of be the punchline, the visual reinforcement from time to time. I love that. I mean, it's in a way, it's kind of, it's such an obvious thing to do to put the person in front of the slides. And certainly one of my pet hates in terms of how like Zoom works is that the presenter is the size of a postage stamp and the slides are enormous. And for me, that was a game changer when I started using mm-hmm and suddenly the focus is on the human. So I'm curious for you, when you're creating a slide deck, when you're trying to put forward an idea or a presentation, what are some of the rules that you're thinking about when you're designing slides? In the beginning, I think I just started, I was just using my keynote slides, you know, keynote or PowerPoint slides. I was importing them in there. You can drag them into mm-hmm and, and doing that. And and uh, some people still do that. I, I pretty much stopped doing that almost immediately because I realized that actually I wanted the constraint of authoring the slides in mm-hmm because they're much, they're much briefer, they're much shorter. So usually it's just a couple of words or a GIF or a picture or maybe one chart. Uh, there's no point in having, you know, multiple sentences, multiple points, multiple equations on a single slide. But when you have something like PowerPoint, um, it really, it really breeds this style of trying to just load it up with with stuff, which makes I think the presentations really, um, you know, really untenable, uh, really unwatchable. And it, it's almost as if like the, your slides are meant to be viewed, like your deck is meant to be something to be viewed without you, but that never works. Like you should never send your slides ahead or behind or something like your slides are not a document. It's not a novel. It's not meant to, it's not meant to exist without you presenting it. You should make a video with you presenting the slides together. But if you look at it that way, then like, well, how, how complex and intricate do the slides have to be? Well, not, not very at all. So I just try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, so, you know, yes, about rules, like uh, I try to keep things simple. So the first the first rule of simplicity is simple is hard. Um, and the second rule of simplicity is there's obviously only one rule of simplicity. You clearly haven't understood the first rule yet. <laughs> I like that. Um, I wanted to know, like, what are the features that you're using in mm-hmm? Um, and, and maybe if we take a step back from that, for the, I mean, I guess I've kind of described how I use mm-hmm, but how do you describe mm-hmm and what it is? Yeah, it's it's a video communication tool. It's really meant to give you you know video superpowers. Uh, I think most people start by, by using it by uh, when they're presenting in on Zoom or Google Hangout or Google Meet or Microsoft Teams or WebEx or something like that. Uh, that's the most common use case right now is people just using it to to present to make their presentation a lot more more interesting, more 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 expressive, more dynamic. Um, what I and, and I still do that all the time. But what we're doing now in, in, in our company is actually shifting almost all of our communication to asynchronous. So we've gone from talking to each other live when we're doing status updates to just sending recordings around. So we have you know mm-hmm TV, where uh, people are just sending recordings of them doing presentations and updating each other, and we save the synchronous communication for for what you and I are doing right now for actually having a conversation where we you know we take turns talking, not for one person lecturing and the other person listening. So more and more, it's about it's about shifting from synchronous to asynchronous communication and kind of smoothly going back and forth between those two. Interesting. I want to know what features you're planning on building in mm-hmm, and, what, and what you're most excited about. 
Well, we are, I mean, I'm, I'm easily excitable. Uh, so I'm <laughs> so excited am I, about, I feel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm excited about lots, lots of stuff. Um, we've got a really ambitious roadmap. Um, we announced a lot of this stuff uh, this summer. We had a, this content series called mm-hmm Summer, which is on our website. If you go to mm-hmm that app and click on the events section, you can see a bunch of our demos and keynotes. And all of that stuff that we announced and demoed and previewed, that's all coming out. There's a bunch of stuff around... Uh, what I kind of think of as the DJification of the world, where like you can kind of be a DJ and smoothly mix between synchronous and asynchronous parts of your of your video, so you can start a meeting live and then switch to something pre-recorded and then switch back to live and do that do that kind of smoothly and effortlessly. We're launching versions on um, on iOS, on Windows. We we're, we're we're launching a new version for the Mac. We've got you know lots of lots of product updates coming out but uh, yeah just watch watch the watch the keynotes from uh, from the summer to get a sense of all the stuff that's coming you know between now and a month or two from now now i imagine because of the timing of when you started mhm and you've been building lots of features along the way that you would have had to rely heavily on virtual collaboration so i'm wondering what's been your approach to to doing that well well, I don't know if we've done it well, but we've we've done it. You know, it, it, it it's actually been great. Um, I think when we started in, in May, uh, we launched May twenty seventh of twenty twenty. So we started a couple of months after we all went into lockdown, and it really started as a joke. Like we we were just you know we were so bored. We were so, all the all of the video calls were so tedious, and um, we were just goofing around. We we're just trying to find something to make us laugh while working on other other projects and. Um, but it, it kind of snowballed uh, from there, and so mm-hmm, it was completely created uh, in a distributed way. Um, you know, we're up to close to a hundred people now working on mm-hmm, and, and the vast majority of them have never met each other in person. You know, we all hired them during the pandemic, fully globally. They're spread out all over the world, and it's great. I think the main thing is we don't think of ourselves as remote. Uh, no one is remote. Um, because remote implies a certain disadvantage. Like you're remote, but other people are somewhere, you know, together. We're not remote. We're distributed. Um, we're distributed by design. Uh, kind of like, uh, you know, the internet is a distributed system. It's a distributed network. Not because the people who created the internet didn't know how to make a centralized network, but because like being distributed is kind of its whole point. That That's the superpower of the internet. And it makes certain things a little bit harder. You know, a few things would be easier if the internet had one big central server, but obviously like no one's thinks that that's a viable thing because it has to be distributed by design. That's what we are. We have we have designed our company to be distributed, not because we had to, not because like we don't know how to be in an office, but because of the massive advantages it gives us. And when you think about it like that, where rather than than focusing on the on the few things that are harder when you're a distributed team, you really focus on the many things that are better and that are easier. It it, it makes everything makes everything more fun. It makes everything more productive. And so aside from the obvious advantage that you can find talent anywhere on the planet, what have been some of the other really big advantages around being distributed? Well, you know, the talent piece is like, let's not dismiss that too quickly. I mean, that's that just that's worth it, right? Like, um, you know, you've, 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 you've talked to CEOs before, right? And I'm sure whenever you talk to a CEO, literally 100% of the time, if you ask, hey, what's the hardest thing about this company? I'm, I guarantee you've only ever gotten one answer. Because, you know, when, when we go to CEO school, they teach us, if anyone ever asks, like, what's the hardest thing about your company? There's only one answer we're legally allowed to give. We're, we're, we have to say, oh, it's, it's the people. It's the talent. It's hiring and getting the best people. Like, that's literally the only thing that any CEO's ever said in response to that question. And it's true for the most part. 
Um, and so here, here we are, we as you know, CEOs, we spend the past you know, 50 years whining about how the hardest thing is people. And the universe has just given us this greatest gift, the superpower, where every single job in my companies is now global, is now I can hire people from everywhere in the world. They can, they can stay where they are. They can do the job. The top of my talent uh, uh, funnel has just expanded by thousands of times. And I'm going to give that up. Like, of course not. I'm, I'm never going to give that up. So, so yeah, the fact that it's a fully, fully globally distributed workforce is amazing. But that, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Another big, you know, benefit is, um, you know, no, no one wastes any time commuting. Like, a hundred percent of the people who work at our companies don't spend any time commuting. Imagine if, like, somehow magically, that had always been the case in in, in our company. Like, somehow, you know, like alternate Earth, you know, Harry Potter style, like people who just teleport to work to the office. No one ever commuted. And all of a sudden, like I come into the office the next day and I say, hey, everyone, like everyone gather around. I've got a CEO idea. I'm going to need each of you to spend, to waste two hours a day sitting in traffic. Yes, it's not very productive and you can't work. And yes, you're not spending that time with your friends and family. And yes, you can't go like to a good restaurant or listen to music. And yes, it's very unhealthy and very stressful. And oh my God, it's terrible for the environment. But two hours a day, every single person wasted sitting in traffic, go. Right? Like, the board would be like, CEO's gone crazy. They would fire me immediately. But, you know, that's kind of what we're asking people to do if we want them to, quote unquote, go back to the office. And then, you know, the fact that any that 100% of our employees can choose where they want to live. They can, they can live in a nice house if that's what they want. They can send their kids to a good school. They can live in a city. They can live in a small town. If, if someone's always wanted to live on the beach and surf, they can do that today and still have their job. And then, like, for the first time ever... Every single person who works in our companies, who works in a distributed company, can choose where they live to have their best life independently from where they work to have their best job. I mean, that, that's amazing. We're never giving that up. And there's like, there's like 20 other superpowers that are kind of like of this level of caliber. And when you think about them, you're like, well, yeah, I'm, not, I'm never giving these up. So sure, it's worth solving some problems to keep these, but I'm definitely keeping them. And so when it comes to collaborating with people that you've potentially never met face to face, like is there is there almost like a, a a template or a system that you use? Like when do you know when to be asynchronous versus synchronous, for example? Yeah, I'm constantly surprised by how, by, by how tall or not tall people are when I first meet them in person. Like, <laughs> I realize I've, I never get that right. Like my my mental image is always off when I like. <laughs> know someone for a few months, you know, but only, only online. And then I see him in person for the first time. I was like, wow, yeah, I, I was wrong about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I have, you know, for synchronous and asynchronous is a really important thing that we're, we're trying to get better at. I have a test for this. I call it the face hole test. Uh, it goes like this. Um, when there's a bunch of people and they're having a conversation and one person is moving their face hole a lot, like for minutes at a time, and no one else is moving theirs, then something's gone wrong, that, that's not a conversation, that's a lecture, and it shouldn't be happening synchronously. If I'm doing all the talking and other people are listening, they shouldn't be doing this in real time. I should have recorded it. They can watch it when they want to watch it. They can watch it at you know 1.7x speed. They can jump around. They don't have to take notes. Like It's just any kind of information transfer where it's primarily one person speaking for, for, for multiple minutes shouldn't be synchronous. It should be, it should be asynchronous. Uh, synchronous communication should be what we're doing here, which is we're having a conversation. You know, I move my face hole for a few minutes and then you go. And that's like back and forth. And then, then okay, then that should be synchronous. And But so much of what we used to do at work was we were having synchronous communications in a way where it really was just knowledge transfer as one person at a time. And we just don't do that anymore. And it's amazing. 
that does sound amazing. Now, I know that you, uh, like while, while a lot of people that work in a distributed fashion, they do work from home a lot of the time, but I've heard that you maybe work from home perhaps 30% of the time. So I want to know where else are you working from? Yeah, I think this is a this is another big kind of misunderstanding. People think that distributed work means working from home. It doesn't. It meant working from home when we were all forced to do it, you know, with no preparation because of, because of COVID. You know, we've had to work out of our apartments and homes with screaming children in an environment that wasn't set up for it. But distributed work means you can you can figure out where your environments are and you can pick you can pick the work environment to best accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish. So I've got I've got a few different places. So I work from home. Some of the time, you know, about a third of the time, uh, I have a nice like AV setup. So if I'm like, like, for example, now I want to be on a good microphone, I've got a good setup at home. So I'll do that for my home studio. But uh, sometimes I work from from a museum. There's two amazing museums within walking distance of me within a 10 minute walk. Uh, I live in Bentonville, Arkansas. And uh, there's a museum called Crystal Bridges, which is just breathtaking. It's maybe it's like the favorite museum I've ever been to. And, you know, I can walk there in 10 minutes and I can walk around the grounds outside and inside. And it's amazing. Like whenever I need to puzzle, puzzle through something, I go and I do it in the museum. Sometimes I go to the library and sit down there. Uh, if I just want a breathtaking view with a lot of art, sometimes I pace around. Sometimes when I have coworkers over, we go for a walk uh, together. And um, it's an amazing environment for being creative, much better than like sitting in a conference room. And sometimes I work from, uh, there's a club uh, that I joined, which has a really nice pool and a gym. And so I'll go work at the club. And uh, if I feel like being around other people who aren't my employees, just other, you know, professional adults, sometimes that's useful. Uh, and then I can do a, like a couple of Zoom calls in the club and then go go swim a few laps in the pool. And then, you know, a half hour later, be back on a Zoom call because there's nice showers and things there. And it turns out that like swimming laps in a nice pool is like the exact opposite of being in a Zoom call. Like every sensation is the opposite of it. It's like the ultimate recharge. And I would never do this before. I could never before like, go for a swim in the middle of the day because what I'd have to like drive to the gym and like, it just wouldn't happen, but now I can work from there. Um, so this idea of like being able to choose where I want to be that I think is best for accomplishing whatever I want to accomplish over a few hours is, is kind of amazing. I'm never giving that up. And all of this is walking distance. So it's not so much walk work from home. It's really, it's really walk to work. Like I just walk around everywhere for these places and a hundred percent of my current lifestyle is accessible to everyone in our companies. Like it's not because I have more money. Um, it would have been the case if I had if I had this lifestyle in San Francisco, but you know when I used to live in San Francisco, my my quality of living was much lower than it is now. But to the extent that it was okay, it was because I was spending a lot of money. But now, like I think all of our employees can literally afford to live in the house that I'm currently living in, and can afford to like be a member of this club and go to the same museums because it's all you know either free or inexpensive because. Most of the world is when you're not forced to congregate in the same exact place as everybody else. I love the idea of walking around a museum when you're trying to puzzle through something. And something that always fascinates me about founder CEOs is that I always imagine this person who's a maker at heart that has had to find a way to also be a manager in terms of thinking about their diary or their calendar. And I'd love to know for you, how do you think about segmenting your calendar between maker versus manager activities that you're doing? So uh, one thing I've done is I have canceled almost all of our, like I said, synchronous update meetings, which frees up many, many hours a day for me. So I used to, when I used to look at my calendar, 
what was I spending time on? Well, I was having, I was having 14, 15 synchronous meetings a day. And, you know, fully half of those were just like one-on-ones, you know, catch-up meetings, standing meetings with various people. Get rid of 100% of those. Um, now, when, uh, when I need to exchange information, we exchange recordings uh, asynchronously. That lets me, that lets everyone watch them anytime. I don't have to do it at a particular time and much faster because um, turns out everyone sounds better and is actually more fun to watch at like 1.5 to 2.0 speed <laughs> rather than 1x. Like literally, it's just, it's just true. Uh, so why would you, why would I want to watch someone updating me at, at the same time they're speaking? Imagine if like when you're reading, imagine you're reading something and you were forced to read at the same speed that the person who wrote it wrote. That wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> So basically, I got rid of most of my synchronous stuff. That freed up probably two hours a day. Um, when I need to have a synchronous conversation, I, of course, we, you know, I jump on a call, we have a synchronous conversation. But by then, we're all on the same page. So we're really having a live discussion. So it's much better and much briefer. And then I don't waste any time commuting. So that's another like two hours a day. So, you know, just pure calendar time. I've got four or five hours extra free time every single day than I used to before which is kind of amazing. And I use that to, you know, to be, to be productive. Wow. That, that's amazing when you describe it like that. Now I want to talk about Evernote because I feel really privileged to be talking to one of the people that actually created it. And I'm sitting here in front of my iMac and the only software applications that I've got open are Chrome because that's how I'm using Zencaster to record this interview. I've, I've got Scrivener open because I'm on a um, deadline for uh, a manuscript that's due in under four weeks. And I've strong, got- Strong choice, Scrivener, strong choice. Oh, it's good. It's good. I just can't work out how to do the bloody reference list anyway. My problem, not yours. Um, and Evernote is the other thing that's open. And I've used Evernote for years and years and years. I can't remember a life where I didn't use Evernote. And I want to know, Phil, how are you using Evernote? What can you teach me about how can I use Evernote better? So yeah, I use it. I mean, I use it every day, obviously. Uh, it's great. I have become, I think as I've like gotten older, I've become more selective about what kinds of things I put in there. So I used to put absolutely everything in there because I like it gave me this feeling of security that I wasn't forgetting anything. Um, and then I think as I've gotten older, I've like gotten to appreciate the feeling of security that I get from being okay in about forgetting things. Like, so I just know there's lots of stuff I'm just not going to retain. I'm like, that's cool. You know, I'll, I'll learn it again. I'll be happy. Um, so I'm more intentional now. Like I put things in Evernote that I tend to like have a higher confidence level that I'm going to need again, that I'm going to want to, you know, that I'm going to want to use. Uh, whereas it used to be, you know, probably... Like I would probably look at 2% of the things that I wound up putting in Evernote. Um, and now I probably look at 50 to 80% of the things that I wound up putting in there. So that's, but that's, that's more about like my lifestyle. Like I just like care less about remembering, you know, every single scrap of information and more about using it for work, for organizing my thoughts, for organizing projects. And um, yeah, I use it all the time. Uh, you know, when, when, when I was, and I haven't been at Evernote for, I don't know, six, seven years. So uh, I, I can't, can't take credit for for most of the new stuff. Um, one of the things that we found when I was still there, which um, really explained a lot to me when we realized this from our research, was people who used Evernote for something that they loved, that they cared passionately about, were much, 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 much like more valuable power users than people who used it for things that they 
don't quite care about. Like people who who were like using Evernote at work because like their company like forced them to use it or something, they didn't really care about the stuff they were putting in there. Um, as it totally makes sense in hindsight, but those were kind of you know lackadaisical users. And whereas people who were using it for their like life's work, for the things that were most important to them, were like really power users who were really in love with it. And um, you know, we figured we had lots of data to kind of back this up. But but the thing that made it really clear to me is I was talking to a, a pretty good friend of mine who I'd you know I'd known for for many years already at Evernote, and he said one to me one day, "Hey, you know, like I'd been using Evernote for like." three or four years now, uh, because, you know, you started it and I figured, yeah, I'll try it out. And I used it a bunch. I used it at work. And I never like, I, I was never that into it. Like it was fine, but I was never like that into it. And then I like decided that I was going to write a, you know, a book and I started using it to like collect ideas for the book. And then I like understood how amazing it was because I was finally using it for like the most important thing in the world for me. And I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. And I thought that was like a really beautiful thing with like make a product that if you use it for something you really care about, it's amazing. And maybe we've been trying to recapture some of that in, in mm-hmm. Hello, we will be back with Phil shortly, where he'll be talking about the rule of three and 10 for business and how this was life-changing. And we'll also hear from Phil about the difference between difficult versus unpleasant decisions and why it's critical that you make that distinction. Now, if you are after more content, you might want to follow me on the socials where I produce quite a lot of content. The two best places to follow me are on LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Amantha Imba. I think I'm the only one on there. And also on Instagram, which I'm starting to post a lot more content to. And you can find me on Insta at Amantha I. Something I have never really used religiously in Evernote, uh, firstly, having different notebooks, like everything sits in my inbox and I haven't relied too heavily on tags. And like, am I missing something really major there? Should I be changing how I use Evernote? Um, Well, you know, I'm similar. So I have, I have notebooks, but you know, I probably have like 50 notebooks, but realistically I only use like four or five on a regular basis. And I barely ever use tags. I mostly just search for things. And it works great for me um, because usually, like, I can just type in a few letters and I can find whatever I'm looking for. I'm going to find, you know, I'll get it down to, like, 10. And then when there's, like, 10 notes, I just, like, the last mile of the search, I can just see the one I want, right? So I can just, like, click on it. So I don't have to get it, like, exactly right. So I, I don't use most of that stuff either. But there's a lot of people who, who religiously use it. What we found is there's a group of people who I think are like organizational fetishists. Like they, they enjoy, they derive pleasure from the act of organizing something. They like putting labels on things and putting things into little cupboards and stacking things up cleanly. There's people like this. I get it. That's cool. They're into the organization for the sake of the organization. They enjoy it. Um, and that's probably, I don't know, 5% of the population. Um, and, they, and these people have like all sorts of, you know, cultish, things. There's like getting things done people. And there's all sorts of like different warring camps about how to properly organize things and what taxonomies they want. And um, I'm not like that. I don't enjoy the act of organizing. I just want to have the benefits of it without actually doing the work. It's not actually clear to me that like well-organized people are inherently more productive than disorganized people. I am fundamentally disorganized in my normal life, but I'm pretty productive. But that's, I guess, one of the reasons why we were so interested in Evernote uh, is like I, I wanted to have the benefit 
of having this organizational fetish without actually liking organizing things. So yeah, I just throw everything in there and it, you know, and it kind of works out, but there's a, there's a very hardcore user base that loves, you know, nested tags and multiple notebooks and flags of different colors. And we were constantly getting bombarded with uh, requests for additional taxonomies, additional ways of organizing for people who are into the organizing. Mm. Now, given you describe yourself as being more on the disorganized side of things, how do you organize your task list and just what your priorities are on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? So, I, you know, I, I've, I've never actually succeeded in keeping a to-do list, a task list. Uh, I, I, I don't have one. Like, I've obviously tried all of them. We have them in Evernote. Uh, I just don't use one. I was actually going to start, at one point, I was going to start a, 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 a company. Most of my company ideas are jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so if someone actually wants to build this, by all means, please build it. I'll, I'll, I'll be a customer. I wanted to start a task manager, um, a to-do you know, list that was called uh, to done or to did. <laughs> and the way it would work is you, you, there'd be no input. So I would start this program, this app. And it would figure out what I did just by looking at like my calendar, where I've been, and it would like it would automatically put items that I'd already done and check them off. So I would look at it and it would say like, watched Netflix for two hours, check done. <laughs> Went swimming, check done, and that was it. I would just look at it. The only way, the only thing you could do is look at it, and it would just tell you what you already did, and then you can be like, yep. That's what I did. And you like feel a sense of accomplishment as if you had like planned it, but it didn't really happen. But I, I don't do that ahead of time. I generally, uh, I live off my calendar. So I do have a pretty well-organized calendar, but that's because um, I have Leah, who's my, my assistant, who does an amazing job in keeping, keeping the calendar organized. That's like my single source of truth. I wake up in the morning, I look at my calendar, I do what my calendar tells me to do. I don't question it. Uh, and, and But in terms of like the kinds of topics and things I'm working on, Look, if they're not important enough for me to remember, they're probably not really important enough to do. That's such an interesting way of thinking about things. Now, I've heard you talk about the rule of three and 10 and how life-changing that was for you. Can you tell me a bit more about the rule of three and 10? Yeah, so this is something that um, one of my one of my uh, friends and, and really one of my, my best mentors uh, is a guy named Miki, uh, Hiroshi Mikitani-san. Uh, Mikitani-san is the founder and CEO of Rakuten, which is, um, you know, started in Japan, but now it's a big global internet company. And uh, he was, you know, the first employee, and now it's, I don't know, you know 30,000, 100,000 employees, and he's still the CEO. He's one of the most amazing people that actually is, like, the best CEO from one, one person to tens of thousands of people. And he came up with this rule of three and ten, which basically says that um, every time something important triples, everything breaks. So every time in your company something important triples, everything breaks. So the idea is like, uh, let's say, you know, you start a company and it's just you. You're the only person there. Kind of figure out how to work. And then you like hire one more person and things are okay. And then you hire a third person and now it's tripled and everything's broken. So now you got to like reconfigure everything. So you figure all that stuff out. And then four, five, six is all fine. But then you hire the 10th person. Everything breaks again. So it's three and 10. 10 because it's just easier than keeping multiplying by three. Uh, nothing magic about 10. It should be nine, I guess, but three and 10 is easier to remember. Uh, and then, you know, you figure it out for, for 10 people and then it breaks again to 30 and then it breaks at 100 and then it breaks at 300. And, and by it, I mean like everything, like how you communicate, how you pay people, 
how you keep your calendar, what kind of office setup you have if you have an office. Like it all, like every time you triple something important and tripling, the easiest thing is tripling headcount, tripling employees, but it could also mean tripling the number of customers, tripling the amount of revenue, like, you know, tripling the number of, of, of products that you have. Every substantive tripling put, uh, puts extreme strain on all of your systems and it's worth looking at them uh, and anticipating it. And uh, a lot of startups go through multiple triplings without, without noticing it. So like right now at, hmm, we're at about, we're getting close to a hundred people. We're at about a hundred people. Probably by the time this podcast airs, we'll be a little over a hundred people. And, but you know, but we still have certain systems. We're only a year old. So we probably have some systems that we put in place when we were three people. And so we've missed now several triplings because we missed like three to 10, 10 to 30, 30 to 100. So those things are like way out of date and need to be, need to be refreshed. So a lot of startups get into trouble when they, when they kind of blow through a few triplings and then things, things start to creak and things start to break. The flip side of that is a lot of big companies waste a lot of time trying to be quote unquote innovative when they really don't have to. Like, you know, if you're a 10,000 person company, like you're good until you hit 30,000 people. You don't need to like figure out too much stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's hard. And that may take a decade. But it's hard to like sit around for a decade without changing things. So big companies tend to chase innovation and change a little bit too much. And small companies tend to forget about it and break things. So I just try to be mindful of that now. For, for people that are working as a manager, why is it important to learn the difference between difficult and unpleasant decisions? Ah, uh-huh. yeah, I think that's a good, that's, that's, that's like, that's probably one of my favorite uh Kind of things that I've that I've that I've learned that I figured out about myself. I found that um, whenever I think, "Oh man, that's a really hard decision," like that's a hard decision. Whenever that happens, whenever I feel like something's a hard decision, I, I like a little red flag goes off, and I ask myself, "Is it hard? Like it's difficult to know what the right answer is, or is it hard? Like it's unpleasant?" And usually, the vast majority of time, when I force myself to think through that, I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I know what the right answer is. It's just unpleasant." So probably 90% of the decisions that I perceive as quote unquote hard, they're not actually difficult to know what the right answer is. I know what the right answer is. They're just unpleasant. They're scary. There's something about them that, that, that's bad. And once I kind of identify which one it is, then, then things become clear. Not easy, but clear. Obviously, if a decision is unpleasant, you should still do the right thing, regardless of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. You just have to deal with the unpleasantness. But I think that what I used to do is really conflate those two things. And I think a lot of people conflate that. I think a lot of people conflate difficult decisions with unpleasant decisions and they pretend that it's hard to know what the right answer is when really it's just an unpleasant answer uh and um yeah that that's that's like a that's probably my favorite like management hack or life hack is just like something's a hard decision hard how and when you have an unpleasant decision to action how how do you approach that conversation uh, it's, it's very situational, right? It depends on what's what's unpleasant about it and, and how. And um, but ultimately, you just you have to do the right thing, and you have to do the right thing. Like I, I, I very much dislike words like fearless. I think for a while it seems to it seems to be receding. It seems to be in remission. But for a while, like a few years ago, everyone was like something something fearless, something something. It was like it was a way overused word. And um, I think fearless is really. People, fearless people are just genuinely stupid. If they really don't have any fear, then they're clearly too dumb to understand what the, what the danger is. I never try to be fearless. Being brave is about experiencing fear. Like if you're not afraid, you're not brave. You're just dumb. 
So you have to, you know, you experience the fear and the trepidation and you allow yourself to experience and you just do the thing that you have to do anyway, because that's, that's the right thing to do. It's not easy, but it's simple. Now, on the topic of management hacks, and I'm not sure if this falls under that category, but I've heard that you always try to be the positive voice in a conversation. Can you tell me a bit about that? It's not so much that I try to be the positive voice. It's that there's a, there's a strong negativity bias in people kind of cognitively. Uh, I have it. Almost everyone has it. Um, where basically it's easier to seem smart if you're being negative. And this is especially true in social situations. So, um, you know, if you've got a bunch of people sitting around and you, you ask for someone's opinion, they're kind of trying to seem smart and thoughtful in front of everyone else. And it's much easier to do that by pointing out the weakness, by pointing out the problems, by pointing out the risks. It's just, just how our brains are wired. And then, you know, the next person has to like top the first person and being like negative and afraid and so on. So typically like decisions are overwhelmingly weighed towards, towards negative, towards the safest option, the least bad option, not, not the most good option. Uh, and this is, you know, there's evolutionary biology for this. There's like very basic brain science um, about this. You know, it used to be thought that the, the amygdala, the portion of your brain, this is wrong and overly simplified, but still useful. Um, there's a portion of your brain that's basically in charge of fight or flight responses. That's very old in evolutionary terms. It exists in almost all animals. And then there's like a much more recent human part of the brain that deals with, you know, opportunity and like happiness and love and strategy. And that's, that's in evolutionary terms, that's brand new and very, very weak compared to the, the power of the, of the dark side of the fear and the negative and the risk aversion. Um, and so when uh, you're making a decision, it's, it's useful to understand, is this the type of decision where it's important to pick the least bad option? Or is this the, t the type of decision where it's important to pick the most good option? Understanding that least bad and most good are often the same. They're often the same. The same thing. Like something could be the most good if it works, but also the most dangerous or the most bad if it if it doesn't work. So you just got to know, like, are you going for least bad or are you going for most good? And you know, if you're um, hundred thousand years ago, you know, one of our, our our caveman ancestors, and you're standing in the middle of a you know a grassy plain, and you think you're, you saw a tiger hiding in the grass. That's like the part of your brain that's like meant, you know, to do that. And you're thinking like, well, should I go into that grass? Maybe there's a tiger there. Then yeah, maybe this is a type of decision where you should take the least bad outcome, which is like, you know, do everything possible to avoid being eaten by a tiger. But if you're like running a startup and you're not about to get eaten by a tiger and you're trying to decide about a particular, you know, how to, what to name your product or whether or not to put in a feature, then like maybe the downside is pretty limited because like, I'm going to get eaten by a tiger regardless of, of how you decide. So you may as well make the decision based on what's most good. And you can't do that if you allow any, any focus on the negatives and the downsides, because then, then the lizard brain, the amygdala portion of your brain is going to kick in and you're going to, you're going to bias towards risk version. So when we're making decisions where it's important to get the most good, not, not the least bad, I basically try to, to discourage anyone from saying anything negative not out of some Pollyannish sense of like, I only want to hear good things, but because I don't want people's brains shut off. So often I'll say like, okay, I only want to hear what can go right. I only want to hear the good stuff intentionally as an exercise, as a meditation, because I don't want anyone to like start that cycle of being like, oh, but if we screw it up, maybe we get eaten by a tiger. Um, which doesn't mean we don't look at the risks. Of course we do. We just, we just try to separate those two things out and look at them, look at them separately. But in startup life, there's many, 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 many decisions where it's more important to be the most good, not the least bad. Mm. 
Now, Phil, for people that want to connect with you and try out the wonderful things that you are putting out into this earth, what is the best way for people to do that? Well, you can send me an email, uh, but I do have 100 and, you know, 200,000 <laughs> <Yeah>. messages. So, <laughs> so good luck that, with uh, that getting a response. Be, be tough. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, you know, Twitter, I'm at uh, plibin, P-L-I-B-I-N, or uh, that app, uh, or allturtles.com, really. Any, any of those are ways to get in touch, and I am happy to, uh, happy to chat uh, anytime. Amazing. Phil, it's just been such a privilege chatting to you. Your products have just made my life so much better. So thank you for the work that you've done. Well, uh, thank you so much. It was extremely kind of you and uh, really fun to chat. Hello there. I hope you liked my chat with Phil. And if you know someone that you think would find it really useful, why not share this episode with them? How I Work is produced by Inventium with production support from Deadset Studios. The producer for this episode was Jenna Coda. And thank you to Martin Nimba, who does the audio mix for every episode and makes all of this sound much better than it would have otherwise. See you next time.